Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a former Russian TV anchor who knows Vladimir Karamuza, who was just arrested in Moscow after appearing on CNN in an interview where he predicted that the Ukraine war would bring down Putin, who would be replaced by a Democrat. Joining us to reconcile that prediction from a dissident who was twice poisoned and almost killed by the regime, and the latest Levada poll that has Putin with 83% approval, is Stanislav Kucha, a journalist and former Russian TV presenter. He has previously worked as editor-in-chief of the Snob Multimedia Platform, chief political analyst and creative director of Commerçant FM All News Radio Network, anchor at Sovrashenno Sakretno TV channel, and editor-in-chief of National Geographic Traveler's Russian Edition. He currently lives in New York City, and we will discuss his article at CNN, How Russians Born in the 1990s Became Putin's Soldiers. Then we'll explore ways the Ukrainians and Europeans can get out of the trap of financing the war Russia is waging against them as they trade with the enemy destroying Ukraine and threatening Europe. Joining us is Gregory Treventon, a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Then finally, we are joined by Juan Cole, a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Inform Comment at juancole.com and is the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and his latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. We will discuss his article at Common Dreams, Want to Defeat Putin? Deliver the Green New Deal. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Stanislav Kucha, who is a journalist and a former Russian TV presenter. He has previously worked as editor-in-chief of the Snob Multimedia Platform, chief political analyst and creative director of Commonsant FM All News Radio Network and anchor at Sovereshenno Sekretno TV channel and editor-in-chief of National Geographic Traveler's Russian Edition. He currently lives in New York City and has an article at CNN, How Russians Born in the 1990s Became Putin's Soldiers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stanislav Kucha. Thank you, Jan. Well, thanks for joining us, Stanislav. And how do we reconcile the latest Levada polls from uh, Moscow that have Putin's popularity at 83% approval, 15% disapprove? Vladimir Karamuza, the Russian dissident, he was on CNN yesterday from Moscow. He said that he thought this war in Ukraine would bring Putin down and he, and Putin would be replaced by a Democrat. So, And then, of course, immediately thereafter, Karamuza, who's been poisoned twice by the regime, almost died, he was arrested. So how do you reconcile between, is it wishful thinking on the part of Vladimir Karamuza or are we to believe the Levada poll that has Putin at 83% approval? Well, I would say that the two do not contradict to each other necessarily. And uh, several points here. Well, first, yeah, and let me say that uh, Karamurza is in jail right now in Moscow and uh, he's spending the night there um, on uh, charges of assaulting a police officer or resisting. Uh, a police officer, but they're right now they're making it 
um, the charge pretty much the same. So uh, I only wish he, uh, you know, he's liberated the sooner the better. Um, and uh, well, I know Karam Rosa personally. Uh, he's the son of my very old and good, unfortunately, diseased friend, whose name is also Vladimir Karamurza, and who's a, who was a famous Russian journalist and TV presenter. And I was the one who introduced uh, Vladimir Karamurza, the junior, to Boris Nemtsov, the uh, Russian opposition leader who was assassinated in front of the Kremlin in 2015. So uh, uh, Vladimir Karamurza, I mean, junior, he knows uh, Russian realities very well, and um, I trust his optimism uh, that Putin will eventually be replaced by a democratic leader. However, uh, even if he is replaced by a very liberal, very democratic-minded leader, that does not mean the mindset of the Russian people will change overnight. That very mindset that has made possible the current Ukrainian tragedy, the war, the Putin's war in Ukraine. And uh, now to uh, the uh, 83% uh, to the poll results. Uh, first, well, surely you cannot trust any uh, polls in authoritarian societies, especially in wartime. Well, just imagine, I mean, you're somebody uh, you're somebody living in, uh, in, a, in an authoritarian, totalitarian now state uh, in times of war, where you can go to jail for just uh, uh, carrying an anti-war poster or for posting um, something like no to war or remember Tolstoy's War and Peace on your Facebook page. You can, you can uh, be detained and even go to jail for that. So imagine you are here in your apartment, and then you get a phone call from uh, somebody who uh, introduces them, uh, introduce themselves as, uh, you know, researchers, and who ask you, what do you think of Vladimir Putin? Or even, no, not like that, but who ask you, uh, do you actually approve of Vladimir Putin and of whatever he's doing? I assume that uh, even if you are in opposition to Putin, even if you hate Putin, you'll still say something like, Oh yeah, just for just to be on the safe side there. So you can't uh, expect any honesty from people who participate in public polls in Russia today. On the other hand, uh, from my personal conversations with people in Russia, uh, including my old-time acquaintances and friends, I know that yes, a lot of Russians, uh, whom I would call uh, the silently obedient uh, majority. They do support Putin and uh, whatever he is doing or whatever he's up to. And the reason for that is uh, because, uh, well, of course, 22 years of propaganda have not gone in vain. And uh, then, unfortunately, the mindset of so many Russians is still very uh, empire-oriented. I mean, too many Russians still miss the times of the Soviet Union. And that refers to both those who actually lived in the Soviet Union and remember those times, the older generation, and ironically to those who'd never lived uh, in the USSR, uh, but, who've, uh, but who remember the 90s a little bit and the sufferings that the economic reforms of the 90s brought. And then all they remember about the USSR is the stories of their fathers and grandfathers about how stable, um, uh, how stable economic situation was back there, and uh, how everything was guaranteed for people, how uh, free education and uh, free Medicare was organized, and how everybody feared or respected Russia, which, and again, in the Russian paternalistic mindset, sometimes equals. If they fear you, they respect you. So that's why, again, 83% of Putin's approval, I actually, even if I distrust public polls, I think that the number is pretty close to accurate. Uh, and uh, yes, a lot of Russians support Putin. But uh, yeah, one point here, very important point here. Um, 
you know how many people uh, participated in uh, physically participated in uh, uh, the ceremony of the funeral of Stalin, of Joseph Stalin, in 1953? Thousands, tens of thousands. Uh, streets were filled with uh, endless, uh, you know, streams of people from all around Moscow. Uh, people died during that funeral, and um, uh, well, people were killed in the crowd. Um, so people actually wept and cried, and uh, Stalin's death was a tragedy to millions. But in just four years uh, after Stalin's death, um, Khrushchev, uh, Khrushchev uh, accused Stalin of a lot of crimes and said he was a, he was a dictator. And uh, Stalin's monuments uh, disappeared overnight across Russia. You know, Stalin uh, disappeared from the Lenin's mausoleum in the center of Moscow. Uh, streets uh, and cities were renamed. Those which were named, had been named after Stalin, uh, were renamed then, just four years. And uh, you know how many people took to the streets to protest against that, to uh, defend the memory of their beloved leader Stalin? Zero, except for uh, less than 100 people who took to the streets in Stalin's birthplace in Georgia. That's it. So, um, so that's, yeah, so uh, what I'm trying to say is uh, definitely uh, when Putin loses this war, and he will definitely lose this war, and uh, when he will be substituted by another leader, hopefully uh, more liberal and more democratic leader, I'm um, I'm not that optimistic that this will happen like right away, very soon. Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, actually, there may be even a far more hockey uh, figure than Putin after him. But eventually, in a few years, I'm pretty sure we will have a democratic leader in Russia if Russia remains, you know, one in the same state. Uh, but even if that happens, it will take decades to uh, change the mindset uh, of the Russian people. And again, I'm speaking with Stanislav Kucher, who's a journalist and former Russian TV presenter. He has previously worked as editor-in-chief of the Snob Multimedia Platform, chief political analyst and creative director of Komosant FM All News Radio Network and anchor at Sovereshenno Sekretno TV Channel and editor-in-chief of the National Geographic's Travelers Russian Edition. He currently lives in New York City and has an article at CNN, How Russians Born in the 1990s Became Putin's Soldiers. So going back to your article and the idea that when Gorbachev came in and the, all of the reforms took place and then the coup against him failed, and as you point out, the obsession on the American side was are the communists are going to come back, which never happened, but Yeltsin became the leader. But then the KGB came back, did it not, within years with Putin, and now Stalin has come back. So... How does that sort of impulse for totalitarianism get exercised? You said it's going to take years. What would the process be, given the, the story that you told about the weeping thousands at Stalin's funeral and four years later virtually nobody defending the exercising of his memory? Uh, well, well, you know, first and foremost, I'd like to say that many in the United States uh, have predicted developments um, like uh, what what happened in the USSR, in the in what used to be the USSR. Uh, for example, in um, 31 years ago, in the pages of Foreign Affairs, Richard Thornborough, who was then Attorney General of the United States, warned about what would happen if the Third Strike failed. He said, uh, I'm quoting almost word by word because I remember, uh, that the primary, the primary problem before the Soviet people and their leaders uh, is to prevent the new Soviet Union from becoming a revived version of the autocratic monarchy, to foster instead true political pluralism and limited government reflecting the rule of law and respect for human rights. So uh, now we can see that what he foresaw happened almost precisely. 
that generation of Russian reformers failed. Uh, why uh, that happened? Well, uh, because nobody ever in history of uh, humankind had ever attempted to, uh, uh, well, uh, transition from uh, an authoritarian, a huge authoritarian uh, society, um, centuries with, uh, with authoritarian traditions that had lasted for centuries. And uh, remember that the Soviet Union lasted for 70 years. So uh, a few generations, uh, you know, were born and died in the Soviet Union. And uh, so what do you expect a society like that to just, uh, um, in the course of less than 10 years, to become something similar in their mindset to uh, European uh, democracies or, you know, Australian, uh, New Zealand, uh, Canadian, American democracies and so on? Uh, not so easy and not so fast. Um, so um, the, uh, the thing is that the uh, liberal reforms that took place in the 90s turned out to be very, very painful to uh, a lot of Russians. Uh, you know, a liberal, uh, price liberalization, uh, privatization, which uh, many Russians still call uh, criminal. Uh, the people who actually carried out all those reforms, which were essential, uh, essential for uh, the new Russia. Uh, so those people are now regarded by a lot of Russians as traitors, as American spies, agents who would, uh, you know, carry down all those reforms, um, following the orders of their bosses in the CIA or uh, the White House. A lot of Russians do believe that. And so uh, by the end of 90s, uh, those you know, millions of Russians were very much disappointed with the reforms. And those very doctors and teachers and uh, coal miners who had supported Yeltsin and voted for Yeltsin in uh, uh, the early 90s, already in mid 90s, and especially in late 90s, they already uh, marched in the streets carrying slogans uh, saying Yeltsin's gang should go to court. I remember those people. I remember their faces. I remember interviewing them. I asked them questions and they said, well, yes, um, you know, I'm either Western democracy is not really for us or somehow uh, its implementation turned out to be wrong. And so uh, those people uh, began to long for stability. In the Soviet Union, um, like, like I remember my friend's grandfather who said, yes, in the Soviet Union, we were poor, but at least we were equal. We were equal and was some sort of stability. Now there is no stability and we are not equal. Uh, the majority are still poor and the, uh, uh, the very few who are the upper middle class and the higher class uh, they have everything, which is wrong, which is not fair, which is not justice. So uh, the main reason for um, Putin's comeback uh, was definitely uh, was definitely uh, the failure of democratic reforms, um, first and foremost, economic reforms in the 90s. And then, of course, it's Putin's lust for power, for, you know, lifelong power. And it turned out, I mean, if you look at uh, the first steps that Putin took as uh, president of Russia, as Yeltsin's successor, um, the first doctrine that the Russian government took was the so-called information security doctrine. Putin saw the power of the free press. He saw what free press could do to politicians. And uh, therefore, uh, first thing he and his coterie did was uh, get control of uh, the free press to actually extinguish the truly independent uh, press, to get rid of pluralism of opinions. And uh, so step by step, first the free press, then the free uh, enterprise, then uh, political competition, uh, then independent uh, court and uh, system of justice. And so step by step, Putin was abridging all those freedoms until uh, 
until we came to 20, first 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the unleashing of the war in eastern Ukraine, and then 2022. So um, that's how the whole thing happened. So just in the last minute then, Stanislav Kuched, do the average Russian, do they believe the propaganda that they get? And do they understand that Putin is running a kleptocracy and that the wealth and treasure of Russia is being shipped abroad into the bank accounts of a handful of the, the Siloviki and their standard of living is going down? I mean, at what point do they get the big picture? Well, there are, um, you, you can't say just an average Russian Ivan, okay? Right. Uh, there are different, um, different, different social and uh, political groups of Russians. There are, are Russians who do not trust propaganda completely, who do not like Putin, and who are ready to, uh, to state their position openly, and who do so, who take to the streets, and uh, protest against the war and against Putin. Even now, yes, um, they are, there are thousands of them, not even tens of thousands, unfortunately. Again, because of the new criminal, because of the amendments to the criminal code, thanks to which they can now go, go to jail for, you know, for things which were allowed even a few months ago. Um, then there are, is a, huge group of Russians who do not like Putin, who don't trust Putin, who, um, of course, believe and know that uh, Putin and his uh, team are corrupt. They know that, but they are afraid to say anything. And uh, they are just there, silent. Um, some of them are willing to leave. Others don't have the means to leave or an opportunity to leave or, you know, to go anywhere. So uh, they are in the country and they're just waiting uh, for the situation to change. Then there is a huge, also a very big group of Russians who even knowing that uh, Putin is uh, corrupt, they think, okay, well, a any leader is corrupt, so what? But they believe in, uh, they believe in the idea of the Russian world of, you know, uh, of, uh, they believe that America and the West wake up with the idea of conquering Russia and uh, turning it into an imperialist brothel. And uh, so uh, their line of thought is, okay, Putin may not be good. We understand he may be different. But at this point, he is our national leader, and he is the only one who can protect Russia from American Western imperialism. So they do believe uh, in propaganda myth. They have been brainwashed for the past 22 years. And then there is the party of war. Those who are uh, ready to support, those who think that Putin is too slow, those who believe that Putin is too soft, those who called uh, Peskov his spokesman and Medinsky his chief negotiator with Ukraine, traitors, um, solely because they openly that, that uh, Russia needs to negotiate with Ukraine and uh, have peace as soon as possible. So there are, again, different groups uh, of the Russian population. And if anybody tells you the exact numbers, uh, the exact percent of that or this or that group, please don't trust that person, no matter how many uh, degrees or what status that person has. Right. <laughs> uh, because you cannot know the truth at this point in times of war in a totalitarian society. Well, Stanislav Kucha, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Stanislav Kucha, who's a journalist and former Russian TV presenter. He has previously worked as editor-in-chief of Snob Multimedia Platform, chief political analyst and creative director of Commerçant FM All News Radio Network anchor at Sovereigno Secretno TV channel and editor-in-chief of National Geographic Traveler's Russian edition. He currently lives in New York City and has an article at CNN, How Russians Born in the 1990s Became Putin's Soldiers. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring ways the Ukrainians and Europeans can get out of the trap of financing the war Russia is waging against them 
as they trade with the enemy destroying Ukraine and threatening Europe. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gregory Treverton, who's a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a professor of the practice of international relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017, His books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gregory Treverton. Great to be back. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, And I mean, there's never been this anomaly, surely, in history, as far as I know, where you have a state under attack by an aggressor and that the states under attack are financing the aggressor. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary when you consider what's happening in Ukraine and Europe. They're in this trap of financing the war Russia is waging against them as they trade with the enemy, destroying Ukraine and threatening Europe. It is an envelope, that's for sure. Um, it's, you know, it's a, the Europeans are really caught between a rock and a hard place having develop this dependence, 50% dependence in the case of Germany on uh, Russian hydrocarbons over the years, it's hard to break that quickly without doing dramatically bad things to your economy. Now, they've all talked in the right direction, but so far haven't done very much. So it does leave them in this anomalous position of supporting Ukraine lots of ways, including the sanctions, but in some ways not the most important one, um, that is oil and gas. Now, at the beginning of the conflict, we worried that if we applied sanctions, the Russians might do the reverse and cut off supplies to Europe. So that was the, um, the concern at the beginning of this conflict. Now it's really having the Europeans in the position of, as you say, in effect, uh, bankrolling to some extent the, their enemy in the Ukraine. It's hard to see a, a short-term change in that, however, because they are simply so dependent on the alternatives. Um, liquid natural, natural gas, takes a long time to build the, the terminals. Uh, wind and solar, ditto, takes a long time, nuclear too. So uh, in the short run, there's really not much alternative. That would have been perhaps if some of our, our friends in the OPEC world had decided to dramatically ramp up their production, but they haven't chosen to do that, I think, mostly because they don't want to anger Russia. You mentioned, of course, how long it takes to get an LNG terminal up and how expensive it is and to build new nuclear plants take decades and cost billions but I think it's actually quite quick and cheap by comparison to put up solar and particularly wind farms can be put up very quickly and I don't understand why there's not a crash program going on in Europe now. Well that makes makes sense. Again the the numbers would probably argue against it making much difference in the short run. We look at Renewables, uh, you know, they account for maybe 10 to 15 percent of energy consumption. It wasn't growing dramatically, but um, it's it's hard to imagine that they could be surged enough to really make much of a difference. Now, maybe if we're coming into spring and uh, presumably energy use is going down in Europe, it'll be easier. And if the Europeans would do even some symbolic cuts or plan on cutting over time, um, that would send, certainly send the right signal to Putin, even if it didn't much affect his immediate wherewithal for war. But what explains the fact that the gas and oil that is going to Germany and to Europe from Russia transits Ukraine, where they get a fee, a transit fee, and those pipelines are above ground, they're very prominent, and they've never been attacked. And why is that, do you think? Well, there's several different ways that oil and gas gets to to Europe, but there are those pipelines. That's an interesting question. Maybe it's something that nobody, that the 
Ukrainians don't want to take that step. Uh, they don't want to cut off the transit fees. Um, they don't want to risk the ire of the Germans and others for cutting off their supplies of oil and gas. Uh, that's that's a, that's a puzzle. You would have thought, in just in the sheer chaos of this conflict, that those would have been hit, even if nobody really intended to. So that is a surprise. So, how do you see this new offensive underway in the east? It's make or break for Putin, isn't it? I mean, if he fails to defeat the Ukrainian army and to encircle them, which apparently is the intention, where does that leave us? To some extent, does Putin have to have some kind of victory, at least something that he can pretend as a victory? How would a defeat play in terms of a final settlement here, if there's to be one? Yes, I think I think he he really has uh, painted himself into a corner. I'm not a corner he didn't expect to be in because he didn't expect that the West would be so united, that the Ukrainians would be so fierce and fighting back. So he really is in a position, I think, where in some ways the only win he could have would be a pretty small one uh, if he did manage to <clears throat> take more territory in the East. And the Ukrainians have already said they'll say, okay, we're not going to apply to NATO. We'll stay a neutral. And he could, if he wanted call that victory and uh, pull the pull most of the troops out and go home. Whether he's prepared for that sort of small victory is, again, I guess my my main worry. It's about all that's within reach, but what, obviously the main concern is that if he feels like he's going down, he might uh, be tempted to take a good chunk of the rest of the world with him, and that's, that's really the, the horror scenario. Well, he's already getting criticism from the right in Russia itself for not having a full mobilization. So one of the paradoxes here, surely, Greg Trevitan, is that uh, there are people worse than Putin waiting in the wings. <laughs> yes, that's always a worry. When we looked at this a few years ago at the National Intelligence Council, we concluded that any of Putin's, any successor to Putin would probably be cut from much the same cloth, and I fear that's the case now, in terms of mobilization, they've you know they've mobilized about 75% of their deployable forces, so it's not as though they're leaving a lot at home. Uh, and you know we've seen all the challenges that they face, particularly conscripts who are don't exactly know why they're there and why they're fighting. And after all, since Putin thinks that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, if you were a conscript, you say, well, if they're if we're one people, why are we killing them? What's the point of this? So I, I think he's uh, got himself in a pretty bad box, and there only I think there's only so much we can do to try and help him out of it. I would be willing, if I were making policy, to try and go fairly far to help him save face, but you know, he's still going to face charges as a war criminal. You know, he's still made Russia a pariah state. And those things are going to take time to turn around, if at all. So the U.S. intelligence community, well, this is according to an article in CNN. They're not exactly releasing the information, but apparently through sources we're learning that there's a concern that, and that the U.S. is assessing that Putin may increase efforts to interfere with U.S. elections in retaliation for U.S. support for the Ukrainians. Do you expect that? Yeah, I do. I've expected all kinds of uh, retaliations, most of which hasn't happened so far, so far as we can tell. But I assume that there would be more cyber attacks. Uh, my guess is he will step up efforts to try and intervene in elections. So none of that, I think, would come as a surprise. It's We've seen that in the past, and we know that, uh, unfortunately, the, as for Russia, a state that's really failing in many respects, but the two things they do have are cyber capabilities and nuclear weapons, and that makes them a, a dangerous failing state, it seems to me, with, because they can do so much damage, and particularly the cyber capabilities are ones that are you know, relatively cheap, sometimes unattributable, and therefore uh, uh, tempting, I think. So I, I wouldn't, I've been expecting, in some ways, more cyber attacks than we've had already. Well, Putin's uh, favorite Americanist on state TV is Malik Dudikoff, a political scientist who specializes in the U.S., and he's suggesting that Russian interference in the upcoming elections is still in its early stages and that more will be accomplished after the war is over. 
and that the frosty relationship between the U.S. and Russia starts to warm up. And then, he, just to quote Dudikoff, when things thaw out and the presidential race of 2024 is firmly on the agenda, there will be moments we can use. The most banal approach I can think of is to invite Trump, before he announces he's running for president, to some future summit in liberated Mariupol. So... <laughs> <laughs> that well, so, fantasy that is, aside, the right. idea that Donald Trump is going to get more help from the Russians in 2024 than he got in 2016 is pretty alarming. It is alarming. It is alarming. And I think it's, uh, in, in that sense, unlikely since we should have been aware of what was happening in 2016. We weren't. We were still focused on jihadis, not on Russians. Uh, and uh, should have known, but now we know, and now we're on the lookout and prepared for. So it, and I think it, that makes it significantly harder. Doesn't mean they won't do a lot. Doesn't mean they won't try. Doesn't mean they won't use the, the combination of hacking on the one hand and social media aided social media aided propaganda on the other. They certainly will, but at least uh, it won't come as a surprise, and we'll be on the lookout for it. And I hope by then we'll have developed or be working toward better better cooperation with the private sector providers and better policing of, of social media in particular. Well, the other thing that, just in closing here, Greg, that what the Russian media is also going on about is they think that Tulsi Gabbard would make a perfect vice president for Donald Trump in 2024. So... <laughs> The there, dream there team, you have. right? <laughs> the dream team from <laughs> Moscow, right? I mean, maybe the dreamer team. I don't know. Let's we'll see. But right. uh, wow, yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. My pleasure as always. Take care. Thank you. You too. And again, I may speak with Gregory Treverton, as a senior advisor with the Transnational Threats Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a professor of the Practice of International Relations at the University of Southern California. He has served in the government for the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, handling Europe and the National Security Council, and was chairman of the National Intelligence Council from 2014 to 2017. And his books include Dividing Divided States, Beyond the Great Divide, Relevance and Uncertainty in National Intelligence, and Science for Policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the best way to defeat Putin, which is to deliver on the Green New Deal. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle East and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com, and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World, and his latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clashes of Empires, and he has an article at Common Dreams. Want to defeat Putin? Deliver the Green New Deal. Welcome to Background Briefing, Juan Cole. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Juan. And we've never had this phenomenon in history, this anomaly where the victims of regression, that is, of course, Ukraine, and it could be the NATO states as well, they are actually financing the aggressor. They're trading with the enemy, and it's all because of oil. So do you think, and oil and gas, so do you think that there's a possibility in this moment that not just the Europeans can wake up to their dependency on Russian oil and gas, but that we can all wake up about our dependency on oil and gas? Yes, I'm hoping uh, that the case can be made uh, more forcefully to the public under these circumstances that Petroleum is is problematic for lots of reasons. It's wrecking our planet. It it causes health problems, but it it most often originates in in petro states, many of which 
are ruled by horrible governments that we are propping up by by buying their oil. And uh, as you say, Europe uh, is now financing uh, Russia's war on, on Ukraine by buying its oil and gas. And you're an expert on the Middle East, and I'm sure we can put uh, Mohammed bin Salman into the mix, can't we? I mean, him and MBZ of the Emirates, they both support Putin. They haven't criticized his war against Ukraine, and they're not taking phone calls from President Biden, who's hoping that the Saudis, as swing producers, could pump more oil and lower the price of gas. But they basically, as I say, how arrogant not even to take the phone calls from the President of the United States. That's exactly right. Uh, the, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia are both major oil producers. The Biden administration reportedly has approached them uh, to increase production uh, so as to allow uh, Europe to get its petroleum from somebody else other than Russia and to put pressure on Russia. Uh, they refused. And one of the, uh, the main reasons for which they refused, one of them is that the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, to which Saudi Arabia and the UAE belong, invited Russia to be a kind of honorary member. Uh, and so there's an OPEC plus that includes Russia. And it's a cartel. Uh, its Its purpose is to help to influence prices. You know, primary commodity producers like oil producers have a problem that there's a roller coaster up and down of prices over time, and they're trying to smooth them out and then to keep prices higher than they would be just by market mechanisms. So if they go against Russia, they lose a lever on oil prices. And the whole purpose of, of, of OPEC is to have that lever. Uh, and so they've declined to join in the U.S. war effort. So... Why don't the environmentalists then make TV commercials with wanted posters of Putin and Mohammed bin Salman asking the Americans to go to the pump, to the gas stations? Do you really want to keep financing these people? Now, in defense of the American people is, where are the alternatives? I mean, you're, you're in Michigan, Juan. How quickly are the big auto manufacturers going to provide electric cars that people can afford. Wouldn't that make the most difference? In other words, you can't blame people for going to the gas station as much as it hurts you. That's the situation we're in. How do you kick the habit? Well, uh, Ian, I, I think there may be a, a misimpression about the cost of electric vehicles. The average automobile in the United States sells for more than $40,000. Uh, and, of course, that's an average, so it means lots of people are buying less expensive cars. But there's an enormous market of people who can afford, obviously, a $40,000 vehicle who uh, are declining to buy one. And with uh, ta federal tax rebates and in some states, state rebates, uh, the price can come down uh, seven dollars to $10,000 on these electric vehicles. So you take a, a Chevy um, a Bolt, uh, it's a $35,000 car. It's a luxury car, by the way. It's a very nice car, and it's electric. Uh, and Chevy makes them at a plant near where I live in Hamtramck. They, uh, they could make more. Uh, they could ramp up production. But they've met market difficulties, and the, the, the consumers uh, are, are not going for these cars. And for reasons that I don't entirely understand, I think people are worried about range, but a Bolt will get a couple hundred miles on a charge, and most auto trips are five miles. So even if you were commuting 40 miles each way to work, which is a long commute, I know people in L.A. do that, uh, you wouldn't run out of juice uh, on, a, on a charge overnight. And uh, the only the only drawback is that if you wanted to go cross-country in an electric vehicle, you'd have to plot out where you were going to recharge uh, and get fast recharge stations. But how often do you do that? And why not just rent a car when you're going to do that? So the, the electric cars are there. 
Uh, for a certain portion of the population, they're entirely affordable. Uh, there are some less expensive ones uh, coming on market, and the Chinese are making uh, inexpensive electric cars. So uh, I don't think that that's the issue. I, I think there's resistance from the consumers. They don't understand what a good deal this is. I, I leased an electric car for a while, and uh, I almost never went to the gas station, and, and I saved loads of money. I, and I put solar panels on my roof and, and charged the car off of the sun directly, so I didn't even have an electric bill. And again, I'm speaking with Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle Eastern and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Informed Comment at juancole.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World. And his latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Want to Defeat Putin? Deliver the Green New Deal. So how then do you solve this problem of consumer rejection of something that should be obvious. I mean, when you go to the gas pump and feel the pain of $6 a gallon, you think that would be a wake-up call. Also, I'm, I'm suggesting that all the outrage that people feel now about the slaughter of civilians in Ukraine and recognizing the butcher Putin, they also ought to be recognizing his buddies like Mohammed bin Salman, who, of course, just gave two billion dollars to um, Jared Kushner. So, you know, I mean, I'm I'm looking at ways to conduct a kind of consumer awareness campaign that encourages the alternative to get off it altogether, which is electric cars, but at the same time recognizes, you know, somehow capitalizing on this anger that's going on now. Is that possible, do you think? I think it's entirely possible, and I, I think our political class uh, has sometimes let us down uh, in this regard. I think President Biden could use his bully pul- pulpit more to push EVs. Uh, and it's not just electric vehicles. Uh, I, I know in, in, in Los Angeles, that's really the solution. But uh, in many cities, people use public transportation, and, and, and that can be electrified. And then the electricity can be generated uh, by wind and solar uh, so that you avoid the petroleum and uh, the other fossil fuels as well. Uh, this is a, uh, a transformation uh, that is ongoing. It is happening. And uh, the U.S. gets now you know, something like 10% of its, uh, of its electricity from wind. I think uh, less, less than that of solar, but solar is, is rising as well. But, you know, we have uh, this strange system in the United States of, of letting big corporations buy our politicians. And if you put them up for sale, somebody will buy them. And so the, the fossil fuel interests, who are, are not that large a part of our economy, uh, do targeting of congressmen and, and senators for campaign donations and, uh, and also at the state level, uh, so that they're constantly trying to put punitive fees and taxes on solar panels when they should be encouraging people to buy them. This even happened, in, you know, there was a prospect of it in, in California briefly. Uh, and uh, they, they they put punitive taxes on, on electric vehicles. And it's it's all, you know, if you trace the money back, it's, it's, it's all initiatives of ALEC and the, uh, the, the, the wealthy corporations who are uh, intimately tied to Alec being the Koch brothers, American Legislative Exchange Council. Yes, and and the Koch, well, there's only one Koch brother left, but uh, their their fossil fuel industry uh, and Exxon Mobil and other fossil fuel uh, companies back the this kind of backward legislation, trying to punish people for doing the right thing, and and you know, I, I just think. We need messaging and we need to fight back against the dirty money in our politics that's making our planet dirty. Well, nothing could be more obvious in that regard than Joe Manchin, who has a family coal business. He's the chair of the Senate Energy Committee. He's the single-handedly killed Biden's Build Back Better initiative that had enormous numbers of, enormous amount of investments in in alternative energy. And you mentioned about driving electric cars across the country. Well, part of the Build Back Better is to put in the infrastructure so people could get charged across 
long distances around the country. I mean, that's just one of many initiatives to create an alternative green electricity uh, yes, right across well, the board. Uh, Luckily, a lot of money for uh, for the charge stations actually was in the infrastructure bill that uh, a mansion did sign off on. And so some of that's going to be done. Uh, uh, it's, it's a fair chunk of money. But yes, uh, I mean, more needs to be done. And and there was uh, there were five, $500 billion uh, worth of green energy projects in Build Back Better, which may never see the light of day or which may be watered down. I, I think with someone like Joe Manchin, um, he, he's not a black and white kind of uh, individual. Uh, he, he does compromise uh, here and there. As I said, uh, a lot of charging stations uh, came through the infrastructure bill, bill which he helped to craft. Uh, I think he, he and, and others of his mind recognize that green energy is the future. Uh, I think they just want to uh, slow it down and make as much money from fossil fuels as they can in the meantime. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, if these are people that can be negotiated with and horses can be traded with them. And uh, it just, it requires stick you know, nothing is easy in life. But, but Ian, I agree with you wholeheartedly uh, that to the extent that the American public is outraged uh, by uh, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, they should understand that this is a brutal, horrific action that's being taken by a petro state, and, and it's able to take this action precisely because it is a, a petroleum-based uh, economy, uh, which is Teflon. People need, as things now are now set up, people need uh, gasoline to run their vehicles, and so P- Putin has them literally over a barrel. And uh, but they do have alternatives. Uh, those who are in the in the market for a, a new car and 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 who can afford the average price of a new car could go electric if they wanted to. And uh, when we vote, uh, we can vote for politicians who are campaigning on electrifying our, our transportation. And of course, this this helps Ukraine, uh, but it, it also uh, prevents the planet from being cooked. So would it be helpful then to tie Joe Manchin to Vladimir Putin? Uh, well, I, I think... You know, and it, to to any extent that Joe Manchin, or let's not forget uh, all fifty Republicans in the uh, in the Senate, who uh, you know, if if any one of the of the of the Republican senators uh, was more green, uh, they could offset Manchin. So it's not just Manchin; it's 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 the entire Republican Party uh, at the higher levels. To any extent that they're standing in the way of uh, the electrification of American transportation, uh, they are uh, hand in, uh, in arm with, with Vladimir Putin and, as you say, uh, with the oil dictatorships in the Middle East, who, again, are doing horrible things in, in Yemen and elsewhere. I mean, having these, uh, what would political scientists call rentier states, so states that you know really depend on a high-priced export, uh, is dangerous because uh, those states have a tendency towards uh, dictatorship uh, and and uh, absolutism. They don't really need their people. Uh, the, you know, American politics is about how many taxes each of us is going to pay and what services we're going to get for it. Those states don't don't need tax revenues very much. They they have a, a, an external source of income. They don't really need their people. Uh, and the, the bargain that they strike with the people is uh, is more that the people should be quiet. Uh, and then the government will share some of the oil wealth with them uh, if they stay quiet. Right. Uh, and then the government is autonomous. It can do what it wants. Right, and share some of the oil wealth, as I mentioned, with Jared Kushner getting $2 billion for his new hedge fund. And clearly MBS wants Trump to come back. So it's not just Putin who's interfered in 2016 and is likely to interfere even more now because he's he's got no reason to be restrained you know so this is the reality and then you on top of all this in this context of this conversation one what is the biggest vulnerability that the democrats and particularly biden have again inflation which is driven by the rising price of gas so it's a paradox to see Biden running around trying to find ways to pump more oil at the same time 
when oil itself is the problem. Exactly. Um, and, you know, you make a, an excellent point uh, here that uh, what's at stake is uh, is these wars in places like uh, Yemen and Ukraine, which Petro states uh, can pers pursue with uh, uh, impunity, uh, but also uh, the very future of our democracy uh, is in danger from these very wealthy players on the world stage uh, who are uh, autocratic and who have found ways now of pumping their money into our own political system. And so, you know, from every which way from Sunday, uh, going green uh, with regard to transportation would be a, a great good thing. As you say, over time, you save money. People don't seem to, to realize this. If, if you're going to be in your house 10 years or more, if you don't put solar panels on the house. And I know not everybody lives in a house, not everybody owns a house that they can do this. But I'm talking about the people who do, which I think are something like 65% of the population. If you don't put electric, uh, if you don't put solar panels on your roof, uh, in most parts of this country, you're actually costing yourself money. You're paying for imported gas. And although we don't import gas from Russia, w w w the gas prices are set internationally. And uh, so we're supporting uh, Russia when we when we use natural gas or methane gas. Uh, and uh, but we could we could especially in California. I mean, I think you have to have your head examined in California if you own a house and you don't put uh, uh, solar panels on it. Uh, and then if you also get an electric car, uh, you can fuel the car off of the solar panels. So you're you're way ahead both ways. And in in summers. Uh, my my electric bill has been as little as $14 a month with air conditioning because I've got solar panels. Uh, and it's it's crazy to, to have that outflow of money, uh, which is hurting the consumer just in making their bills high. But then also if we see where the money is going, it's going to these uh, evil dictators. Well, Juan Cole, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ian. All the best. And again, I've been speaking with Juan Cole, who's a professor of modern Middle East and South Asian history at the University of Michigan. He's also the author of the blog Inform Comment at juancole.com and the author of The Ayatollahs and Democracy in Iraq, Engaging the Muslim World. And his latest book is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Want to Defeat Putin, Deliver the Green New Deal. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine One more light goes out